Hey, welcome to week number two of our series that we're calling Talking Points. Uh, it's really the perfect blend of faith and politics, and uh, really appreciate you joining us on our online campus uh, today as we continue this series, which really today we're going to be looking at how should a Christian approach politics in general, and uh, the big idea is that people should come first and politics second. Jesus put people above all other things, and as his children, his followers, we need to do the same. And let's be honest, we oftentimes, many of us are putting politics over people and over relationships. And, and as I promised last week, two promises uh, in, in this message series. Number one, everybody's going to be uncomfortable. I appreciate so much feedback uh, from the message last week. Actually even have a political consultant, professional uh, political consultant, uh, who, who's a member of our church that uh, just gave me some great real positive feedback as well. And so I, I really do appreciate that. Obviously, it's not the easiest topic uh, to deal with in a, such a polarized, divided uh, community and country that we're living in uh, at this time. But we're all going to be uncomfortable. But if we'll take to heart, I think what we're talking about uh, last week, this week, and then next week is the finale. We're going to be better because of it. So this is, again, kind of like it's not a pregame speech. This is the halftime speech. Uh, if I was a football coach, I would say, you know, in terms of living out our faith in the middle of this political season, I don't think we've done, we have not played our best in the first half, uh, but we can change and we can be better, and that's what this whole series is about. So last week we talked about really this big question, and that is, are you willing to put your faith filters ahead of your political filters? Which comes first? Is, are, you, are you willing to view politics through the lens of the Bible, or do we view the Bible through the lens of our political perspective? Uh, are you willing to be a Christ follower first before you're a Republican or before you're a Democrat? Second, are you willing to follow Jesus, we asked last week, even when doing so creates space between your party's platform or the candidate that you're going to vote for when you realize, okay, I'm going to vote for that person, but the reality is my faith in God and what I believe as a follower of Christ, they don't fully represent it. Neither of the candidates fully represent uh, the biblical picture of thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's what we're supposed to be about on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus told us. So I'm not suggesting that we have no political opinion or party or affiliation, but I am suggesting what Jesus commanded, and that is that we're supposed to love one another just as he loved each and every one of us above our political opinions or our political perspective. And so last week we talked about this idea of we have to really refuse to divide. That I think as a church family we need to have zero tolerance towards people, even in our church, that would try to divide us along political lines. Because we understand from John 17 that we looked at last week, that is not the prayer of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. He said, let them be one, even as you and I, Father, are one. And so... Really, the, the three points last week were we can disagree politically, but we need to love unconditionally, and we need to pray for unity. And, and this message kind of overlaps some, uh, or last week's bleeds into 
uh, this message this week, and so I hope you're following along on our Valley Christian Church website. You can check out my notes there and uh, add your own notes to those as well and email them to yourself, and you'll have them for, for all time. I, I want to uh, make a book suggestion, and you'll see a little button at the bottom of those notes. You can order this book yourself, uh, and it's this fantastic book. came out about 1997. It's not new at all. It's been out for a long, long time, called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark is an incredible church historian, uh, and, and most Christians that I know, even if you've been in church for decades, have very little knowledge and understanding of the history of the church, particularly after the, the close of Scripture. And this deals with really the first three centuries of the Christian church, and you'll be amazed how people just like you and me that weren't even allowed to vote turned the most powerful empire in the world, the Roman Empire, upside down by the way that they lived. And so I really encourage you to pick up a copy of this book. You'll, you'll thank me that you did, The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. And there's a link right at the bottom of the notes on the website, uh, on my notes there, uh, where you can order that from Amazon or anywhere you choose. Because in the first century, folks were always trying to get Jesus to take sides. And that's what the message today is, is called, Taking Sides. We're talking about that. Uh, the same is true today. Both parties are convinced that Jesus would support their political positions. You hear politicians on both sides of the aisle quoting scripture, talking about Jesus, using his name, oftentimes in vain. Uh, and, and when you interpret the words of Jesus through your political filter, it's amazing that Jesus agrees with every one of your political positions and doesn't challenge one thought or opinion that you have. Isn't that crazy? In fact, uh, it's kind of like this. He is so red, he's so blue. It's amazing how often he agrees with you. I mean, actually, maybe God should have sent you instead of Jesus because you always agree. The reality is this is not true. And it's also not true that Jesus agrees with every one of our political positions because every political, both political positions are severely flawed. If you asked me, hey, Greg, could you write a position paper on why the Democratic Party best represents the teachings of Scripture, I could do it. If you asked me to write a, a position paper on why the Republican Party best demonstrates the teachings of Scripture, I could do it. And you know what's crazy? I could probably use the exact same Scriptures. Because the reality is, neither one does. Both do to a certain degree, but, but neither one does in totality. At best, they're flawed. At best. Both of them. And so I believe that we need to be involved with the political uh, you know, uh, in politics. I think we need to vote. I think it's very important that we vote. The thing that I think is important that we remember, though, as Christians is this generations ago people weren't allowed to vote and they went out and did something crazy instead of pull a lever they lived for Jesus and they turned the world upside down by their life not by their political opinions and we can do it again regardless of who's in the White House I mean just think about it fast forward 20 years from now 30 years from now Joe Biden's not going to be here any longer Donald Trump's not going to be here any longer. A lot of us aren't going to be here any longer. But Jesus is still going to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
And so I, I love this statement by uh, Pastor Tony Evans, incredible pastor down the Dallas area. Uh, he put it this way, Jesus didn't come to take sides, he came to take over. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come to take sides, he came to take over. He came to introduce the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is always at some level and some detail at odds with the political parties and political powers of this world. That's why it's foolish for the church to be divided over a candidate or over a king who's temporary, temporarily holding a position. It's just foolish. And so today I want to offer up a, a template, if you will, uh, that we can actually follow that will help us to know where agreement really ends and where diverse political views begin. And, and so, you know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, in his writings, he used this phrase, he used it two times, but it's really all throughout uh, the inspired words of Paul in, in the New Testament. And, and he talked about the law of Christ, the law of Christ. And in fact, uh, what he's referring to is, we looked at it last week, I want to look at it again. John chapter 13, John 13, verse 34 through 35, Jesus said, after washing the disciples' feet, and as we talked about, even Judas's feet, who he knew was going to betray him, he says, a new commandment I give to you. This is the great commandment we often refer to, biblical scholars, theologians, and pastors. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if, and boy, that's the hinge word right there, if you love one another. It doesn't say they're going to know by how you vote. It doesn't say you're going to know by their political opinions. It says, if you love one another. And that word love is not passive, it's active. It's active. It's a verb. It's an action. And so this is what Paul refers to as, this, when he says, you must love one another just as I've loved you. This is what Paul really is referring to when he talks about the law of Christ. And so this love one another just as I have loved you, it really summarizes the entire value system, the ethical system, of the marching orders of the kingdom of God that Jesus Christ has given to you and to me. It encompasses all of it. And Paul picks up on this in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, and he says, for instance, carry each other's burdens... That's a, that's a verb, that's an action that we're supposed to care for one another. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Carrying each other's burdens, that is not a passive thing. That's an active thing. And somewhere in our thinking, we've replaced caring for one another with voting a political position. And we think at the end of the day, we're caring. And Jesus is like, you haven't begun to care yet until you actually, personally care for another person. You don't care. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. It's not the politician's job to do this. It's not the government's job to do this. This is the children of God's responsibility. That's how you and I fulfill the law of Christ, and there's no other way apart from actually caring for one another and carrying one another's burdens. When the concerns of others concern you and you act accordingly, you're fulfilling the law of Christ. As Jesus' followers of all political persuasions, the law of Christ should inform our collective consciousness. 
That's the law of Christ. So, so what does it mean to have our uh, conscious, inform our consciousness, the law of Christ? What it means is this, that we should all be disturbed, irritated, and convicted by the same thing. And the reality is, we're not. Because instead of the perspective of fulfilling the law of Christ, we look lower and we settle for lesser kings and we view Jesus' words through our political filter. The law of Christ is supposed to inform our conscience so that we're disturbed and we're irritated by the same things. By the same things like injustice, disrespect, people undermining their own futures, autonomy that undermines the family, community, that devalues life from womb to tomb. It should disturb us. It should disturb us when, when the world treats human life as disposable. We should be greatly disturbed by it. That's how the law of Jesus Christ informs our consciences, our conscience. We're disturbed, we're irritated, and we're convicted by the same things. According to Jesus, what's good for people is what's good. What was best for people is what's best. And so the law of Christ should inform our collective conscience. Historically, this is exactly what happened. That's why I recommended that book, The Rise of Christianity, to you. The law of Christ actually informed the conscience of the early church for the first 300 years. And let me give you a couple of examples of this. Uh, in in uh, the Roman Empire, uh, it was self-evident. It was self-evident. It was so obvious, uh, no one needed to even point this out, that, that slavery was good for society. That was a common understanding in the Roman Empire, that slavery was actually good for society. And, uh, and it, it, was, it was unquestioned. That, that it was good for people to own other human beings. Some people should be owned and others, uh, you know, for their own good should be. Uh, some should own people and others should be owned by people for their own good. In fact, uh, the philosophers uh, at the time like Aristotle and others, their whole job as a philosopher was to try to make sense of the world, to explain how the pieces all fit together. Listen to what Aristotle said about slavery. He put it this way, for that some should rule over others and be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but it's expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. He was like, it's natural, it's important, it's the good of humanity that some human beings rule over the others and some human beings own another human being. That's for the good of humanity. Of course, all this is anti-God, and all this is antichrist. And so what literally happened is the Christian church in the early days rose up and said, that's not right. Because they understood that all human life bears the image of God from womb to tomb. And no human being should be owned by another. And think about it, this slavery in the Roman Empire was really not uh, based on race. In fact, anyone could actually become a slave. If you owed money to someone else, you became a slave until you paid that off. 
Uh, boy, that would make you pay off your credit card every month, wouldn't it? If you and your children, okay, you can't pay off your, your credit card. We're not talking minimum payments here. Uh, you can't pay off your credit card. Okay, I'll take your, your eight-year-old daughter until you pay it off by working for me. That's how slavery happened in the Roman Empire. And everyone really potentially could become a slave at any moment. There's one point in, in uh, history that the population of Rome, two-thirds of the population were actually slaves. One-third was the ruling class, two-thirds were slaves. Think about that for a minute. Of course, the ones that never were slaves were the government officials. They were kind of above it all. And the church stood up and said, this is not right because Jesus said, love one another. It's a failure to love for another human being to own a human being. And in the fourth century, St. Augustine put it this way, Slavery is the result of sin. It's sin to own another human being. And shortly because of that, because the church cared for those that no one cared for and took a stand in the middle of a culture of compromise, Caesar outlawed slavery because of Christians, just like you and me. They didn't vote. They just actually lived what Jesus wanted them to live. Let me give you another example in the Roman Empire of how the Christians just lived this, this great law of Christ. It was self-evident in the Roman Empire that infanticide was good for society, or what it was actually called was exposure. If you had a child... And, and maybe you were hoping for a boy, but you got a girl oh, disappointed. You could go and leave that infant outside the walls of the city or, or right along the, the, the tree line of the forest and walk away. And you did not commit any crime as that child was exposed to the elements and would die. If a husband felt like his wife had been unfaithful to him and the baby that she bore was not his, he could just simply take that baby and just leave it outside to die and he had not committed any crime. That's how cheap life was. And you know what the Christians would actually do? They would take those children and bring them into their home and raise them as their own flesh and blood. I'm not talking about hundreds. I'm not talking about thousands. I'm talking about millions. Millions of children. They took a stand even when, when they were being executed and persecuted. And they would raise those that were literally executing them. The Christians would later, they're taking those, their children and raising them as their own. Love one another just as I have loved you. They did not believe in the power to vote. They didn't even have the power. They believed in the power of living the life Jesus commanded you and I to live. And it changed the world. Christians condemned it and they went and they rescued the children. Why? Not because it's commanded or, or in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Because they understood human life is made in the image of God. No matter what the circumstance, no matter what the situation is, from the womb, in the womb, to the tomb, human life bears the image of God. It is precious and it should be preserved at all costs. 
at all costs. Scripture didn't require it, but love required it. Love required it. And so in 318, after embracing Christianity, Emperor Constantine declared infanticide or exposure was a crime. Because of the influence of the Christians, their compassion, because they were more compassionate than any other religion, and they showed it by the way they lived their life in saving and rescuing those lives that were doomed to death. Powerful. Later on in 374, Emperor Valentinian made exposure a capital offense. In other words, you could lose your life if your baby lost its life because you neglected it. These issues are, this is nothing new. But Jesus gave us the tools. Love one another, just as I have loved you. When the law of Christ informs an individual or a society's conscience, things change. They can't help but change. And it's transcultural, and it's transgenerational, and it's global as well. And so the law of Christ should inform our conscience. It's why the church is so important. It is why we dare not allow the world to divide us along political lines. And the second kind of template here, the second point, is the law of Christ informs our knowledge and our wisdom. And it's one of the things that we as human beings can do. We can accumulate knowledge and we can pass it on to the next generation. You know, I've had uh, Susie and I since we've been married, we've had like five dogs uh, over the 30 years that we've been married. Uh, and there's been a little bit of overlap, but like when we had our English Bulldogs, our last one, Savannah, you, you know, she didn't like uh, when we introduced Tybee, uh, you know, our first Frenchie to her, she wasn't like, listen, now, let me tell you, this is the way things go around here and it's going to help you out. They can't do that. Human beings, we can do that. This is the way it goes in life. Let me help you out. Parents do that to children. Only human beings do that. And so the law of Christ, what we learn, we need to pass that on with knowledge and wisdom to the next generation instead of the next generation having to start over all the time from square one. And so the law of Christ informs knowledge and wisdom. And the thing is God accommodates us based on our capacity to understand and so the way that you see this in the Old Testament, the way that God revealed himself in the Old Testament, very, very limited, if you will, shadowy. And then you get in the New Testament, and Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because I and the Father are one. Because their capacity, knowledge and wisdom had accumulated, their capacity and their knowledge and wisdom was passed on. And then Jesus gives a full picture, really, of who the Father is. The same goes for you and for me. That if we're growing in the law of Jesus, you know what happens? As we walk with Jesus longer and longer, you know what's bound to happen? Our entire perspective on humanity, on those who disagree with us, on even political issues, they should be transformed and changed. As we, here's this crazy thing, spiritually mature. As we spiritually mature. Because the law of Christ is transforming our hearts and it's transforming our minds. And it's transforming our, our hands. And it's transforming our feet. You know, back in my 20s when I knew it all, I, I thought, man, I, I, there, there's no need to, there, I don't need to do any of that. When I finished my bachelor's degree, I was like, why would I ever read another book? 
back when I knew it all in my 20s. And then I realized the longer you live, the more you realize, the less you know. That's why I went back and got master's degrees and doctorate degrees, because I realized I don't know anything the longer that I live. And, and allowed others that have gone before me to inform my knowledge and my wisdom based on their experience. And so the law of Christ informs our knowledge and wisdom. Our capacity increases and our knowledge of how the world works increases as well. And knowledge and wisdom combined uh, with an informed conscience should be used to determine our next one as we follow the template, the third part. And, and the third one is the law of Christ informs policy and platform and legislation as well. But when it comes to policy and platform, this one right here, and, and legislation, uh, there's always going to be some disagreement among Christians. And, and that is, there, there's a reason for that that I think it's important that we understand. Oh. Why are there always going to be disagreements? Um, that's where we really have work to do. And, and here's the reason why. Because where you stand depends on where you sit. Where you stand depends on where you sit. Maybe you've heard that before. It's kind of a political quote. Miles Law, uh, it's, it's referred to as Miles Law, named after Rufus Miles, who was a federal official in the Eisenhower and the Kennedy and the Johnson administration. He's the one that coined that phrase, where you stand depends on where you sit. And, and what he was literally saying there is our cultural context, that's where we sit, what we've experienced, that really shows where we stand uh, when it comes to politics, Republican or Democrat or independent. Uh, and, and it's not really, the reality is, it's not so much because of our faith. And that's where the problem oftentimes comes. Maybe it's our faith, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's just our own political or our personal experience. So your political views, the reality is, my political views, your political views, none of them are shaped in a vacuum. Most of the time, we hold the political views, at least of our parents. And if it's not our parents, our parents, our mom and dad did something, we're like, well, I'm not going to be like that, so I'm going to go to the other opposite view. But I don't know anyone, myself included, that said, you know what, I want to form some political opinions, so I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover, and I'm going to see what the Bible says before I have any political opinions. No one does that. And so really, our political views and values are shaped by where we live, how we're raised, where we're educated, if we're educated, what we've been told, what we've seen, what we've experienced, and what we've seen others experience. And notice, this shapes our political perspective, and the Bible's not on there. Faith is not on there. And, but the reality, this is how most of us live. And so none of us have this same experience. You have no idea what it's like to be me. To grow up in, in, for the first five years of my life in rural Georgia. And then to be a pastor's kid. Move up here to this land, Yankee land in New York. You, you, you don't have the same experiences I do. You, you don't know what it's like to, to experience the, the level of poverty my family did. Even living in this area in the 1970s. My dad's trying to pastor a struggling church, and all the money that there is is, uh, you know, after all the bills are paid, we're going to pay the pastor. That was the reality of the life that I grew up in. You don't know that. And, and so we can't assume, you can't assume to know what my political perspective is. 
But I have one, and it's based on this, and yours probably is too, and I'm not ashamed or uh, embarrassed to announce that most of my political perspective, especially early on, was not based on the Scripture. It was based just on this, just on this alone. And my fear is for many Christians, it's still just based on this. Instead of being based on the law of Christ. A variety of things like this have influence on our political perspectives and and our opinions. And um, let's be honest, a lot of this is stuff we have no control over. But it shapes if we don't look for something else, it shapes our political opinions. Again, where you stand depends on where you sit. And so recognizing this, first of all, empowers us to open our hands and open our hearts to other people that don't view the world the way that you do or don't view the world the way that I do. And so putting it all together, the law of Christ informs our conscience, our knowledge and wisdom, and it should inform our policy, our platforms, and the legislation that we support. So what do we do? What can we do? How are we going to find the way forward? Let me give you three suggestions here real practically. This isn't going to be profound. It's not going to be new. But sometimes we just need to be reminded of the right thing to do. I think especially in the current climate in our country. Here's the first thing. Listen. Listen. Listen to people who don't experience the world the way you do. And and let me just say that. You can't assume that you know how I see the world unless you've asked me. And I will say this. I've never been asked as a pastor how I see the world. I was thinking about the other day. No one's ever asked me. Greg, based on your experience, how do you see the world? I mean from the time of this recording, right now. They, they, they ask the Bible and all those things, but based on your experience, how do you see the world? How do you see what's going on? Based on your personal experience. Listen. Listen, not just to the haves, but to the have-nots. Not just the Christian perspective, but listen to those that deny Christ. The young, the old, the blacks, the whites, the straight, the gay, the single, the married. Open your ears and just listen. Gain some understanding. That's step one in the way forward. Second step is learn. Learn. Be interested in what they have to say. I I, I love this quote. I forgot who said, pay attention to the frontiers of your ignorance. We all have it. We all have certain, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in this world that we have no knowledge about whatsoever. Pay attention to when, you know, I, I hear people say this all the time. I don't understand why someone could have that political opinion. Exactly. That's why you need to listen and learn. Whenever you say, I don't understand, you're saying, I'm ignorant. I'm unlearned. 
and I refuse to listen. Instead, I choose to listen. And I want to learn. Because I want to learn how to carry your burden. And I want to fulfill the law of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Learn. Be interested. Be a student, not just a critic. We got too many critics today. Not enough students. Otherwise, we'll discount everything that doesn't fit perfectly into our current flawed worldview. Let me just say this. You're better than that. Be better than that. Talk to folks that don't agree with you. See it from their side of the fence. Life looks different depending on your experience. Carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Your Republican brothers and sisters are not crazy. And your Democratic brothers and sisters are not crazy either. They're just like you. They're taking a stand based on where they sit. And here's the last thing in terms of real practically. Listen, learn, and this is the most important, love. Love. Never burn a relational bridge over a political view. Because politics are going to come and go. But Jesus is here forever. It's not worth it. All these things are temporal. Relationships are what really are eternal. Let me put it this way. The you beside you is more precious to God than your potentially flawed political view. Jesus always elevated people above political opinion and taking sides. Always. That's why he was able to say, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and God's what is God's. In fact, uh, look at this, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us. Notice that's plural, not singular. Let me read it this way. But God demonstrates his own love for Democrats and Republicans in this. While Democrats and Republicans were still sinners, Christ died for Democrats and Republicans. How dare I, how dare you burn a relational bridge with someone that Jesus Christ died for, laid his life down for? And so we need to listen, we need to learn, we need to love. And some might say, uh, Greg, that, that's, that's so naive. But remember, once upon a time, there was a handful of Jesus followers that were crushed between a tyrannical empire and the temple. And they gave to Caesar what was Caesar's. And they gave to God what was his, their lives. 
that empire is no more. And that temple is no more. And that great Caesar is just a footnote in the story of Jesus of Nazareth. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go, empires rise, empires fall. But Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Jesus did. And here we are. It's still the way forward. The way has not changed. Our responsibility is to show our divided world what it really looks like to disagree politically, to love unconditionally, and to pray for unity. You see, at Calvary, we lost our right to do anything less than this. That's why Jesus came. That's why he died. And that's why he rose again. And so listen, learn, and love. And don't miss the final episode of Talking Points next Sunday. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just receive your grace in this moment. We receive your grace to stand, to step up in this moment in the history of our nation. And Lord, may we be your people. Lord, may we put people above political opinion. And may we love the way that our Savior and Lord commanded us to love. And may we carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Lord, let us love like the early church that loved enough to say a human being owning another human being is wrong. Let us love enough to say uh, a parent put into death an innocent baby is wrong. And let us sacrifice, Lord, to make sure that life continues, that life is celebrated because we bear the image of God in the womb to the tomb. Forgive us, God, when we have settled for lesser kings. And may we do the bidding of the King of kings and the Lord of lords in this day in which we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.